I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 27th, 2016. Coming up, the Rosetta mission that has been orbiting a comet for two years will be coming to an end this week. We talk with three local members of the Rosetta team about their experiences, the science results, and exactly how do you end a space mission? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Each year, over 300,000 Americans seek emergency care for the excruciating pain of passing kidney stones. Conventional interventions include expensive surgeries and annually add $2 billion to the U.S. health care bill. A cheaper solution may just be an amusement park away. Riding a medium-intensity roller coaster can help pass small kidney stones, according to the Michigan State osteopath David Wartinger. In his years as a doctor, Wardinger says that patients have occasionally reported that if he or she happened to ride a roller coaster during a painful kidney stone attack, the kidney stone passed spontaneously. As for what kind of roller coaster, patients most frequently cited Disney's Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. One patient even claimed that he passed three kidney stones in a row, one each time he made the roller coaster. Wardinger could have concluded that his patient stories didn't hold water. Instead, He and colleague Mark Mitchell used a 3D printer to create an anatomically correct silicone kidney. They filled their silicone kidney with urine, real urine. They sprinkled in a few real kidney stones. The researchers got permission from Disney to hide the whole contraption in a backpack. They took the backpack to Orlando and rode Disney roller coasters 60 times to see what happened. Yesterday, the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association published the results, showing that kidney stones pass through the silicone kidneys most often on... Thunder Mountain, just as Wardinger's patients had reported. The key, Wardinger says, is that Thunder Mountain is a moderate-intensity roller coaster. He says success was especially likely when kidney stones were small and the rider was at the back of the train rather than near the front. Wardinger adds that the osteopathic doctors emphasize prevention and the body's natural ability to heal. So for people prone to kidney stones, riding moderate-intensity roller coasters might be a good medicine. Since 1945, the Lasker Awards program has recognized people who have created major advances that benefit human health. This year's winners include three physician scientists who have figured out how animal cells, including human cells, sense and respond to oxygen. Though we have known for millennia that life as we know it depends on oxygen, how this happens on the molecular level has not been well understood. William Kaline of Harvard, Peter Ratcliffe of Oxford, and Greg Semenza of John Hopkins have shown how the cells themselves in multicellular animals adapt, deal with changing oxygen levels. Their work characterizes a novel pathway cells use to convert environmental signals into metabolic responses. Another Lasker Award for clinical medical research honors three scientists who revolutionized treatment for the often deadly disease known as hepatitis C. 
Ralph Bartenschlager of Heidelberg and Charles Rice from Rockefeller University spent nearly a decade figuring out how to coax the hepatitis C virus to multiply inside lab-grown host cells. Michael Sophia with Artbus Biopharma used the replication methods to test drugs that target the hepatitis C virus within the liver. The result has been a hep C medication with unprecedented potency and safety. The third Lasker Award we mentioned today is for Special Achievement in Medical Science. It goes to biochemist Bruce Alberts of the University of California, San Francisco. Alberts has created new tools to clarify how cells copy DNA. To explain this and other science topics, he teamed up with colleagues to write an innovative cell biology textbook, now in its sixth edition, that has altered the teaching of cell biology. As president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and in other roles, Alberts emphasizes that science provides a crucial foundation for any successful nation. Learning about science, he says, is vital for sound decisions that enhance the welfare of everyone. You can find out more about the Lasker Awards at LaskerFoundation.org. Rosetta! You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. And now, we'd like to give you an update about the Rosetta Space Mission that has been in flight for over 12 years and will be ending with a dramatic crash this Friday. It's an event that will be watched and talked about by people around the world. As background, Rosetta is a space mission run by the European Space Agency with contributions from NASA. The mission's goals have been to study a comet, to learn not only about how comets work, but what comets can tell us about the origins of the solar system and perhaps connections to water and life. After a 10-year cruise through the solar system to reach its target, Rosetta became the first spacecraft to orbit and escort a comet as the comet approaches and flies flies past the sun. And Rosetta also carried a smaller spacecraft named Philae that performed the first landing on a comet. The Rosetta mission has a very strong Colorado connection since one of the instruments, an ultraviolet spectrograph called ALICE, was operated from the offices of the Southwest Research Institute right here in Boulder, where my co-host, Joel Parker, and I both work. Wearing his day job hat as an astrophysicist, Joel is a member of the Rosetta ALICE team, and you may have heard his reports in past editions of How on Earth, or on the Discovery Channel, or on the BBC. Today, in addition to Joel, we have three other members of the Rosetta team here in the studio to talk about Rosetta, comets, and the rather exciting ending planned for this mission in a few days. Our guests are Andrew Steffel from the Southwest Research Institute, John Pinot from Stellar Solutions, and John Noonan, who is a recent astronomy graduate from the University of Colorado and is working at the Southwest Research Institute. Welcome to the show, John and John and Andrew. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. So, you know, I think I, like many people growing up, had learned about comets 
and having them described as sort of dirty snowballs flying around in the solar system. But now that with the Rosetta mission, we've actually been up close to one of these comets, how has what we've seen changed our views of comets? Well, that's a good question. I think there are a lot of really interesting results that have come out of the Rosetta mission so far. One of which, I think maybe one of the most interesting ones, is this question of how did Earth you know, get its water? So we look at the Earth and the Earth's surface, and it's mostly covered with water. But where did that water come from? Actually, the inner part of the solar system, when the Earth and the inner uh, rocky planets were forming, was fairly warm. And so we think the water actually was too hot. It would actually you know, turn to gas and, and blow away uh, during the early formation of the solar system. But yet the Earth still has a lot of water on its surface. So where did that come from? And so one idea that we've had is that you know, perhaps later after the Earth had formed that it was bombarded by a series of comets and that that brought the water to the Earth. And one of the things that we've learned from the Rosetta mission is that the uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio, these are two isotopes of the element hydrogen, one with one extra neutron, uh, is very different on this comet that we're studying than it is on the Earth. And so that suggests that maybe comets, which we thought might have been the source of the Earth's water, might not be the actual source. And maybe it's something like asteroid collisions or, or some other mechanism to get the, the water to the Earth. So that, that's one, inter- one interesting result. And so... It hasn't actually solved the puzzle per se, but it's sort of ruled out one of the many possibilities that we thought of. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's as with a lot of things, you know, it's a complicated question, and sometimes the answers you get from science and discovery are not always clear. So we've ruled out one possibility, but uh, there's still many other uh, avenues to pursue to try and find out what the answer is. Now, I know one of the exciting things when we first got images back was the weird shape of the comet. Uh, one of our colleagues, I believe, was the first to call it sort of like a rubber ducky shape because it seems to have a little head, a neck, and a larger body. What interesting things does this shape tell us about um, either the formation or the evolution of this comet? Well, I think that's, you know, the, again, that was a really surprising thing. The uh, initial shape model, so based on sort of telescopic observations from Earth, we originally thought it was much more round and, you know, sort of a one sort of spherical or you know, roughly spherical kind of shape. Instead, we have something that does actually kind of resemble a rubber duck, and that was very surprising to us. And certainly that was a very um, challenging moment for the engineers and the flight dynamicists who had to put this lander on the surface, because instead of having a relatively orderly surface, you have this very complicated shape. The question is, well, how did it get that shape? Did it form that way? Were there two separate bodies that came together and they sort of collided and stuck? Or perhaps you had something that was sort of one body originally, and maybe it's been kind of eroding and outgassing from the middle and, you know, created that sort of shape by losing material uh, as opposed to having things coming together. By looking at the actual comet itself, and and, uh, what we see is there's a lot of layering that goes on in the comet, and it looks like the layers are at different angles to each other. So that's a pretty good uh, point of evidence, this idea that, in fact, it was two different objects that came together in the solar system, stuck together, and it formed that way. Wow. Uh, Collision in space, and yet it didn't destroy everything. That's pretty exciting. So the three of you have worked on the ALICE instrument, which is a spectrograph, Um, that was uh, led from here in Colorado. A spectrograph is designed to look at different wavelengths of light and tell us something interesting. Uh, So what what kind of uh, information does the ALICE observations tell us? So the ultraviolet spectrograph, in the ultraviolet wavelengths of light, you're going to see the most basic atomic and molecular transitions. So really what you're doing is you're sampling the basic uh, gases and molecules that are around the comet, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon 
This tells us a lot about the actual makeup of the comet and the surface, the composition of the coma, which is the gas that surrounds the nucleus of the comet, which is the icy portion. So the ultraviolet spectrograph is useful in sampling that very low wavelength area to learn more about the, uh, the composition of those, uh, the, the coma and the stuff around it, which gives us clues as to the formation and the evolution of the comet itself. So what kind of um, chemicals and, and uh, molecules did you guys end up seeing around this comet? So the ALICE spectrograph saw a lot of hydrogen, carbon, ox molecular oxygen, water, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. So we're getting a, you know, those are the most common mo molecules in our solar system. And we're sampling a lot of those, but we're also... We, we're really trying to look for some of the rarer things, noble gases. Noble gases are like argon, xenon. Those are really useful because they're like a temperature uh, or thermometer for the early formation of the solar system. It tells you at what temperature that comet nucleus formed. So we were really looking for those uh, noble gases, and we didn't see very much of those. And I don't think any of the, I think only one other instrument actually was able to sample the noble gases. I believe that was the Rosina instrument, which was a uh, mass spectrometer. So if you didn't see the amount of noble gases you expected, does this actually tell you something um, about processes on the comets? Well, it, 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 it does, certainly. You know, it's, uh, again, with science, you know, it's, it can be really challenging sometimes. So the fact that we didn't see argon or xenon does tell us something. So it, it could be one, you know, it could be a couple things. One, it could be simply that your instrument wasn't sensitive enough to pick this up. It could also mean that this comet has been warmer throughout its history. And so those noble gases, which get trapped in the ices when the comet formed, if it gets warm enough, those noble gases will diffuse out and, and you know, disappear, basically. So it could be that not only you know, are, was our instrument sensitive, but it just those gases are not there. And so we think that perhaps it's probably that latter one, that you know, if uh, the comet had its original uh, amount of these noble gases, argon, xenon, etc., we should have seen it, but we didn't. And so that kind of points to the fact that maybe this comet has been more processed, has gone through a lot more uh, swings in temperature uh, through its history uh, as it goes around the sun. So what we're, we've been discovering is as we observe the comet up close, it's basically changing the story that we've been telling about this particular comet. I think that's right. And yeah. possibly changing the story that we tell about all comets? Well, you know, that's the question, right? So we've looked at a couple different comets now. This is the most heavily studied comet, you know, in history so far. We've been to several other ones, uh, Vilt 2, Halley, uh, a couple other comets. But, you know, it's hard to say, you know, if you look at just one object, and there are, you know, thousands or millions of comets that are in our solar system, how does this one comet represent that whole group? And so you have to be very careful about drawing large conclusions from this one object. But yes, it does, it does seem, based on this, the sample that we have, that uh, this is kind of a, you know, something that we can apply to, to the sort of larger body of comets in the solar system. Always exciting. And as exciting as the science is, there's always sort of a human story to these missions. And one of the things I find interesting uh, amongst our guests here is John Noonan. You actually had the opportunity to start working on the Rosetta mission as an undergraduate at CU. So how did that happen, and what kind of work did you get to do as an undergraduate? Well, it happened through a very interesting series of events that it would take quite a long time to go through completely but what i did end up doing uh i was working at the planetarium on the cu campus fisk planetarium and through a few channels i was able to secure a job on uh alice though i was actually trying to get a job on new horizons as a uh, 
as an intern. And uh, I was essentially kind of the the lackey for a couple years. I did whatever needed to be done. I I was supposed to do operations and keep track of you know spreadsheets and make some uh, what we they were called medium term planning uh, summaries. I was supposed to keep track of those. And what I ended up doing was finding little odds and ends to explore and. One of those involved trying to figure out if our detector on Alice would be affected by dust impacts from the very dusty coma around the nucleus. And uh, from there, I kind of took on a little bit more of a science role. We ended up having a very interesting shape that appeared in quite a few of our observations that I uh, was able to explore and really delve into it's been nicknamed the chameleon and I was able to get a couple papers published on it, which is pretty cool. You know, not a lot of undergrads can get that opportunity. And I was very happy that, you know, the folks at Southwest research Institute were able to give me that chance and allow me to kind of flourish there. There's not a whole lot of places that will give a undergrad that kind of chance. So it was huge in helping me get along my path through astronomy, a real once in a life opportunity for you. Absolutely. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGN New Science Show, and I'm talking with members of the Rosetta Sp- Space Mission about what the mission has been doing for the past two years studying a comet and how it's going to end its mission this Friday with a controlled impact on the comet. And so that brings me to um, another s- sort of interesting question, but from a different angle, from more of the engineering angle. So, John Pinot, um I want to ask you some questions about the operations of this mission, because when Rosetta arrived at the comet, um, there had been a lot of attention given to the fact that it had been uh, a long-duration mission, that it had spent years in hibernation, uh, and I sort of feel like it gave the impression that, well, the hard part was behind us. But I'm willing to guess that that impression is wrong. What has it been like operating the spacecrafts around a comet? It's been so surprising that uh, we've been able to uh, get to this point. I, I don't know if many would put uh, money on that. Uh, there are so many challenges and risks in this mission uh, throughout the entire mission, um, including yeah the hibernation being essentially off for two and a half years, and then uh, and then getting to the comet. We had this uh, irregular shaped body which we had to learn how to fly around, and then many other factors that other space missions don't have to deal with uh, an active body that's spewing off gas and dust uh, that's unpredictable uh, big jets and chunks of material flying around some of the sequences of images from the osiris imager uh, looked like we were flying through a snowstorm so it was uh, uh, a very dangerous and um, and risky environment to fly through uh, a lot of the instruments are uh, susceptible to contamination, it would degrade their science quite a lot if if we were exposed to this. So we had to be agile in our operations planning to protect the systems on the spacecraft and the instruments to make sure we get the best science that we can get. Um, and that meant uh, replanning and re- changing our operations um, style and tools um, quite often, actually. So. One of the exciting things about this mission is that you guys caught up with the comet before Perigee, followed along through Perigee, and so Perigee is when the uh, comet is as closest to the sun that it ever gets, which means it's, that's when it's most active. Um, 
so when you talked about you having to make changes and plans, are, was this a day-to-day, week-to-week type thing? Um, or were you able to anticipate ahead of time what was going to happen to the comet? We, of course, knew kind of on, on the general sense when the activity was going to get stronger and, and when it was going to die off. So we knew at about the month level uh, what to expect. But within that time frame, on the day-to-day level, there were strong jets that we could not plan and react to. So um, because of that, we added extra margin onto our planning um, to get further away from the comet so that we wouldn't uh, be as affected by some of the materials coming off the comet. And then flying around uh, the comet, uh, they're a little bit more uh, conservative sometimes than they had to be to uh, how close they get to the comet. We've flown um, as close as two kilometers to the surface of the comet. And and uh, the comet's irregular shape and rotating underneath of us, that means that uh, it's it's uh, the local gravity field is changing uh, and, and affecting the spacecraft. And, and so that's uh, pretty unusual uh, operations in terms of other spacecrafts. Wow, amazing. So you mentioned having challenges with all this gas and dust flying around contaminating the cameras. And so I know, uh, John Noonan, this is something that you've worked on. I wonder if you could give us an idea of what kind of challenges uh, you deal with when you have dust basically getting into inside the cameras yeah so not everything on the mission's gone exactly peachy there's a there was a moment in march 2015 when the star tracker which is a camera system on the spacecraft that we use to make sure that everything's pointed in the right way when you're in space that's you navigate by looking at the stars and double checking their positions and that tells you which way you're pointed the amount of dust that was surrounding the spacecraft got so high that it actually blurred out the star tracker so it couldn't tell where it was which is not a great thing when you're flying around a very small body like a a comet where you need to know exactly where you are so you don't hit it so the spacecraft went into what's called safe mode where which is exactly what it sounds like it's safe it turns everything off and makes sure it's trying to communicate directly back to earth as quickly as possible to re-establish contact and uh, after that incident we had to move our sp- the spacecraft back out about 100 kilometers further away from the nucleus. But there are other uh, problems with all the dust. The ALICE instrument is open to the environment. So there's no glass plate or lens to prevent anything from entering the instrument. And what we found is that those small very particles of dust and ice can enter our instrument and actually end up impacting on the detector and create signal that can be mistaken by the detector for light. And in a spectrograph, you expect straight lines. That You expect straight lines at a very specific wavelength that indicates a transition in a molecule or an atom. And we were seeing spirals and curves that we could not explain. And modeling with the CU Dust Lab here, run by Mihai Horiani, uh, showed that we actually have ions and small dust grains, you know, micrometers, nanometers in size impacting our detector. So this was an opportunity not only just to deal with the problem and solve it for ongoing investigations, but it sounds like you guys have been able to then learn some new things from it. And so that's exciting. Um, but speaking of exciting, what's going to happen in the next few days uh, is also in some ways unprecedented. Uh, Rosetta launched a little lander called Philae that uh, attempted to land on the comet. But now, in the next few days, as part of the end of mission, uh, Rosetta itself is going to uh, land. 
or crash might be the better way to describe it. So, John Pineau, can you give us a, sort of a brief description of what's going to happen on September 30th? Right. So we've been orbiting the comet here uh, for two and a half years, and it's coming to the end of uh, the lifetime of the satellite um, for various reasons. And uh, the evening of the 29th, we'll uh, start a thruster burn that will point us towards the comet, and then gravity will basically pull us down to the surface of the comet. It'll uh, be at about a walking speed, about one meter per second, when it uh, impacts the surface, and it'll be on the head of the comet, um, uh, kind of on the opposite side of the head of uh, the fillet lander, um, and we're uh, hoping to get excellent uh, high-resolution data uh, as we get closer and closer to the surface, um, and we're going to be coming up towards uh, some pits in the surface where we've seen uh, jets and um, outgassing coming from. Uh, it should be a, a great success and, and uh, add to the previous successes that the mission has had. Um, and it's really a testament to the international cooperation um, of this mission. Um, many different institutes across uh, the world speaking different languages and different time zones. And we all come together in these meetings to plan this out and find out how can we get the best science from this mission. Uh, and it should be really exciting. Awesome. Anything in particular, Andrew, that you're hoping to get from these uh, last few days? Well, I think it's it's just going to be really interesting because you know because the spacecraft is solar powered, it can't you know power itself as this comet goes away from the sun. That's why we chose to crash into the surface, and so we're going to be going closer than anyone has ever gone to a comet, and so we're going to get these really high resolution close up images and see things that are just centimeters across. I mean, that's amazing to be able to see that on an object that's you know orbiting the sun far from Earth. And so one interesting thing is we might see things. Um, they were called goosebumps before. They're sort of these kind of about meter sized objects that might. Explain kind of how the comet came together. Right now, we have a good idea for how to sort of form things from dust into sort of rocky-sized objects, and we have a good idea of how to form things that are sort of kilometers across and make them into planets. But there's revolutionizing our understanding of comets. Andrew Steffel, John Noonan, John Pineau, and my co-host web pages at rosetta.esa.int and rosetta.jpl.nasa.gov. And the Rosetta blog at blogs.esa.int slash Rosetta. And thank you guys for being here. Again, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Manfred Krug. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU Comet Line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Joel Parker.